morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Laura Bradburn. This is the World Football Index podcast. This week I'm joined as always by Stevie Greve. How are you doing this week, Stevie? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Been spending the last, uh, well, I don't want to say 24 hours because it sounds kind of sad, but a significant portion of that time playing the new Pro Evolution Soccer. So my, my thumbs are a little bit sore, shall we say, but... Uh, Playing with Mbappe and Coutinho up front for Celtic has its upsides. <laughs> if only that was true in real life, eh? Well, exactly. We can't even hold on to Boyata and Dembele at this point, so chances of having Coutinho and Mbappe, I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, that's for another day. Uh, we are joined today by Nikos Overhull, who is a football analyst, and here's t- he's here today to talk to us a little bit about um, just the way that modern football clubs are changing in the in the modern game and how the way in which they're run is kind of being affected by all the changes that are going on. Uh, Nikos, welcome to the show. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm not too bad. Um, this is this is an interesting topic. When when we first started talking about it and got in touch, I thought this is a really interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people have covered. But in your job as a football analyst, obviously, you've got to sort of take into account a lot of different aspects of the way a modern football club is run. So if you don't mind, first of all, just for some of the listeners, myself included, who don't really understand, if you wouldn't mind outlining a little bit about what your role as a football analyst sort of encompasses and and what you do sort of day to day as as a role. Okay. Um, Basically, I work as a consultant for different football teams. Uh, and I help them uh, with, for, for instance, scouting or opposition analysis or uh, helping find helping to find them uh, managers. So it's basically like helping clubs uh, make better decisions in their day-to-day practice. Okay. I mean, I, I can understand how they would reach out to somebody who's a specialist in that area. I assume that there's a lot of different sort of aspects that co- go into that in terms of the, the analysis that you have to do, taking into account what the club's looking for and obviously who's available? Yeah, of course, like, because I've worked for clubs uh, across the world, I've built up a knowledge base that uh, not a lot of clubs can can necessarily replicate themselves. So if they want to, for, for instance, look for a manager, uh, someone they don't already know, that's quite difficult if you have no real knowledge of other leagues, which is sometimes the case for, for teams. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point, and it's something that quite often, as a writer myself, I kind of get pulled up by by fans on Twitter and things like that. If you if you claim that you don't know a player very well or a manager very well because you don't cover a league very often, then that can be something that that is seen as a negative. But obviously, you know, everybody's got so much going on that you can't be expected to be on top of everything. Stevie, is that something that you experience? Um, just discussing with people I feel like there's a there's a pressure on people nowadays in the days of social media to be a kind of expert on absolutely every area of the game and and it's not something that's achievable really yeah I think it's something in, in modern life where people feel like they need to have an opinion on on everything and maybe I was like that at some stages of my life but you have it when you're on tv that you know if you're covering the champions like you need to know about the greek league Shakhtar Donetsk you need to know about Serie A, you need to know about Premiership. So when you're working in certain bits of football coverage, you need to know a lot about these things. And you, you see a lot of guys who will, will, will slaughter a league or they don't know somebody who's 
reasonably well known in a different league because they don't watch it. I think if you don't watch the French second league, how do you know who the best player is? Or if you don't watch the Spanish second league, how do you know which teams play really nice football where the manager might be on somebody else's radar? So it's, it's one of those things where I think guys like Nikos who spend a lot of time analysing and researching different leagues have created a knowledge base because they're going to be asked the question. If the question is never going to be asked of you, unless you really, really want to know for yourself, then it's, it's maybe not necessary. But I think in the day of social media where everybody's expected to know everything, um, the people who do have a big knowledge base become really valuable to football clubs. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that's becoming more and more the case as, as clubs have reach that expands globally and, and they're looking to bring in players internationally. It's definitely something that, that, that guys like you, Nikos, are, are obviously providing a vital role. Um, in terms of building up your knowledge and your database and things like that that you provide for the clubs, what are the, the main ways in which that you do that? Do you have any sort of tried and tested methods or, or is there does it vary depending on the, the job that you're asked to do? It varies. Like Obviously, I, I watch a lot of football too much sometimes. <laughs> and also, I, I sometimes work with, with StatsBomb who have their own database. They collect their own data, which is obviously very helpful as well because you can statistically profile certain managers, for instance, or players, which will which would help teams uh, look for these types of players. So if you want, for instance, I don't know, a, a manager who is very attacking, um, who plays a very heavy passing style of, of football, who implements that in every team that he goes, you can sort of think of what would be the best statistical parameters to find a guy like that. And if you have those, you can find managers like that across the world. So it's always a combination of data and of uh, looking at his teams and also do background uh, research on the manager as well. That's really interesting. StatsBomb's not something I'm familiar with myself, but certainly as I kind of get to know this kind of area of the internet a lot more, some of the, the things that Stevie suggested on previous podcasts like Y Scout and things like that. There's a lot of um, sort of databases and information out there that are being collated by people like yourself that that is definitely proven useful to the kind of more amateur fan of the game or follower of the game like me who who can definitely sort of certainly not dip into that quite as deep as, as the professionals do, but certainly can use it to sort of inform our knowledge. Um, Stevie, obviously you you coach for a living and you do a lot of coaching of um, various levels of football teams. How, how much does uh, databases and, and collections of information like that from sites like that um, sort of aid you in your day-to-day role? If, if you take it from a coach education standpoint, you can look at what happens in in a real game of football and you can look at something like if you take like Neymar's dribbling stats for something like how many take-ons he'll attempt and convert in a match I don't have the rough data to hand but if you ask a parent how many times should that player dribble past an opponent out of 100 sometimes they'll say something ludicrous like 95 Yeah. and then you're going right well, well Neymar maybe does it 66 and he's the best at it mm. so are we maybe overestimating the quality of the player or what the expectation should be. So then it becomes more about evidence-based coaching. Like if if you take coaching courses as an example, there's always a crossing and finishing one on a UEFA A license or a B license or a wide attacking one. But then when we put in crosses, there's nothing to tell you, well, what's the data from successful crossing locations 
or where goals are scored from from crosses and how you can generate second balls in the box or what rebound areas there will be to to mop up a second ball to score from and how do you generate that situation so that you can control the cross and the second ball. So there's a lot of these things which come into the overall process which are missed by a lot of people. The coach based on what did I do or what do I think as opposed to objectively what evidence is there to help support what I think and will it change kind of the, the way that you approach a match or the way you approach putting together your style of play. So I, w- I would say, like, I came across Statsbomb, I think, in 2013, end of 2013, and it kind of changed a lot of my approach because I was working off uh, a, an opinion rather than from evidence. And if I, if I look back now, it's informed quite a lot of these things. So if you take it from how it informs your own process, these things to do with data are really, really important. I think that's a really good point, and I think I think as as Europeans and and as people who are followers of soccer or football, however you want to put it, um, the statistics thing is still a relatively new area in this sport. Whereas, you know, I'm starting to get a little bit more into things like the NFL now, and and they they are very stats driven in the way that they do things. You know, there's not a pundit or a presenter or even a player out there who can't quote percentages and points and things like that about individual players and about teams as a whole and there's certainly things to derive from that and obviously it's about taking what's relevant to you and what what you feel will help you improve your team that that is the main the main issue there um Nikos is I take it then this might sound like a bit of an obvious question but I take it technology has kind of very much influenced your role and changed it over the years from whenever you first started doing it. It's it's obviously something that must be integral to your role nowadays. Yeah, I would say that uh, my job probably wouldn't exist uh, without it. And because I think what, what Stevie touched upon is that the integration of new technologies, of new types of insights, also requires maybe a different type of executive or coach, people who feel comfortable uh, taking the insights provided by data analysts and actually using them in their everyday practice. So you can have the best data analyst in the world, but if the people making the actual decisions, be they a coach or the director of football, if they don't feel comfortable using these insights, it doesn't actually help you. Uh, And I think that the necessity of people who feel comfortable using analytics uh, and combining that with you know, video scouting, live scouting, and background research is actually sort of is very important for modern-day football teams. Because if you have executives that don't feel comfortable using a source of information that other teams are using very well, then clearly you're at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's that's all absolutely true. I think I think there was very much a resistance to technology and statistics and science influencing football in the initial stages, but I think it's something that's definitely been overcome in recent years and, and hopefully something that, that can be adopted by clubs and, and introduced into their working practices going forward. Talking about clubs and their working practices and things like that, one of the things that we discussed before we we went live tonight was um just about how modern football is changing the way that clubs are run and that there are some vital things that, you know, basics, if you like, that, that I think we all agree are vital to a club to run efficiently. Um, and in 2018, Nikos, what would you say some of those kind of vital aspects of, of, 
of club management are nowadays? I'm going to give you a very boring answer, which I think might actually be correct. And it's that uh, a lot of things that make the difference uh, for teams are not the most spectacular things. But like I said, like a lot of it uh, for like head of scouting or director of footballs and even coaches is about um, managing the information streams. You get a lot of people who give you information and your job essentially is to take that information and help and let it help you make better decisions. So that means that a very important thing in modern day football is basically bureaucracy. It's information management. It's getting the information in the right way to the right people. And that is something that a lot of clubs struggle with. For instance, I uh, worked in for a football league club uh, relatively recently, or earlier this year, and they didn't really keep scouting reports for players they didn't watch live. So if they watched a player on video, they didn't keep scouting reports. Now, clearly that leads to a situation where the, the scouts are no longer accountable because if you buy a player and there's no actual written record for who decided to, that, these, that this player should be bought and a player turns out to be bad, no one is going to claim him. Everyone is going to say, well, I wasn't a particularly big fan of that player. It was the other guys. You know, so you get that situation where because you have no real information management system, you can't actually hold your employees accountable for the things that they do. And that, that sounds extremely boring and extremely basic, but that's something that goes wrong at a very large number of clubs. That's amazing to have that insight there because I think as somebody who doesn't who who follows the game but certainly very much more from a just sort of on the pitch perspective to know that there are clubs out there where that sort of infrastructure isn't really there it's is baffling to me but it's obviously something that that, that guys like you are able to to see working well at other clubs and sort of translate that into the way that that clubs are run when you come in and when your advice is sought. Stevie, that that absolutely baffles me. Just want to know your thoughts on that primarily before we ask anything else. <laughs> I think if, if you're if you're part of a coaching team and um, a scout recommends you a player, whether they've watched them on video five times or one time or live, you want to have some sort of breakdown as to what it is that they do. If a club doesn't have any sort of evidence that they watch the player, then how do you know they're even doing anything? How do you know they're not just on Twitter following a few people who like some, like watching some leagues and go, somebody mentioned that player a few times, let's recommend that one without watching it. So I think there's probably in the modern day, there's probably a lot of ways where you can cheat. But the best run clubs are probably the ones with the most accountability. And the ones with the most accountability have probably got people who are really dedicated to making sure they do their job well rather than pick up a paycheck. And you can see clubs like Huddersfield who have always been you know, lower-level clubs now in the Premier League, clubs like Bournemouth. So there's, if clubs are really well run from the recruitment, the scouting, the analysis side, the sports medicine and the coaching, then there's nothing to stop them from getting to the top level. So I think it's something which has to be done to a higher level. Yeah, I think it's also important that uh, the thinking is joined up in all levels of the club. So you don't have the club going in a million different directions at once. So, for example, Liverpool is a very good example. Klopp seems to be fairly happy to let the director of football decide on players. They, he trusts their scouting, all aspects of it. A negative example uh, would be, for example, Aston Villa, uh, the season that they were relegated to the championship. That summer, they changed to a uh, more analytics-driven approach to recruitment. But the manager 
was Tim Sherwood, possibly the most old school manager uh, around. Well, in the sense that he is still around. So clearly, if you have those two opposites in the same club working ostensibly towards the same goal, things aren't going to go well for you. That's very, very clear. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And and although I said I, I primarily look at things from an on the pitch level, I think it's obvious even to the most kind of fans who are not aware of of the way a club runs. It's obvious to even them that in situations where the thinking isn't very joined up, whether it's you know managers not being able to attain the transfer targets that they like, or managers not being able to play the players that they want to play or like you say having a an approach to scouting and an approach to player management that doesn't tie up with the actual man who's in charge and it's not to say like like you say about Tim Sherwood Aston Villa it's not to say that his method is necessarily wrong in any way but it's just that obviously if he's going to want to do things one way and the club's going to want to do things another way, that's not something that can work in the longer term. Or even a shorter term in that case. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> um, it's funny actually now that you mention it though, it, one of the clubs that I follow quite closely is uh, Ajax. I'm actually going out there to a game and uh, next month. Um, I've got friends out there who are season ticket holders and, and they seem to... I think they've had issues over the past few years, but they are seeming to get back in their feet in terms of the way that they manage. I think Mark Overmars is their director of football. They've got Edwin van der Sar looking at the marketing side of things. Do you think they, as a club, have a kind of model that is suitable, or do you think that they are sort of going through a period just now where there's still things to improve? Ajax are... uh... They, they, in, in recent years, they were a bit of a mess. Consider, uh, they have the biggest budget in the country and are on a title drought of five years now. So that's not a good sign. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been repeated conflicts between a head coach, members of his coaching staff, and the executives, Mark Overmars in particular. Mm-hmm. Of course, the thing that sets Ajax apart from basically any other club in the world is the, the strength of their youth academy, which cannot be replicated. Uh, what is interesting this summer is that Ajax have changed Ajax basically have infinite money relative to the Dutch league. And they finally started using that money to buy players like Dusan Tadic and Daley Blind, uh, who are, of course, for Eredivisie level, are very, very good. And that was basically the first time that they managed to use their money to actually really improve the squad. And the reason for that, I think, might be that the pressure is uh, seriously on for Overmars in the sense that they, if they don't win the league he might be out of a job. Mm-hmm. So uh, they ended up in a good place, I think, but I'm not necessarily sure that that is the result of a good process. Yeah, it's one of those things that, I guess, at the end of the day, even if the infrastructure isn't there, sometimes financial power is enough to get you over the line. But like like we said about Tim Sherwood's situation, that's not necessarily something that will work in the longer term either. Um, Stevie, looking at that and looking at the way that clubs are managed, is there any sort of things that you feel you've observed from clubs in the past or things where you see that there's an obvious miscommunication within the club or anything like that or or any clubs that you can think of where where you actually feel like they're working as a cohesive unit together to kind of for the greater good if you like i think if, if we take celtic as an example of a club who for for a long time when neil lennon was the manager um, and at the start of brendan rogers reign it was kind of the business model was Sign people for less than a million, a million and a half, give them a couple of years, 
try and sell them to England. So Fraser Forster, I think they made about 12 million on him. Same with Vincent Nibanyama. Virgil van Dijk, an obvious one, and then they have the selling fee. Armstrong, you know, one million from Dundee United, and then seven million to Southampton. Just now, you're you're looking at the squad, and you go right. Are you going to buy somebody for two years and then sell them on? The Musa Dembele situation is is one obvious one, but I think the same odds and Edward for ten million, probably on the basis of knowing that Dembele should have been sold because there was a lot of interest last year. Possibly the same with. Oliver and Sham being bought for, for four and a half million in the hope that maybe they get 20 million from in a couple of years. So they've got Dedrick Boyata, who I think was a free transfer from, from Man City or very cheap. They can maybe get 10 million from. But they haven't sold them this year. And now, as we've seen today, there are there are a few problems online and internally. So I think that, you know, a club with a, with a clear strategy for buy young, buy cheap, sell a couple of years later, sell for a lot of money use that as a selling tool to bring players in and say, look, two years here playing the Champions League, we'll sell you on to a big club for a lot of money, is a good way of doing it. And I think that there has to be a clear connect between the boardroom and the manager. And if the manager starts going against the business model of how to run a successful club, they might still be successful for a year or two, but without the regeneration of sales and if they drop the Champions League money is there, then they can be caught, especially in and Scotland, where Rangers are now able to push Celtic again. So it's one of those things where you can look along a lot of different clubs and if the business model is very clear and the business model starts faltering, then they start just throwing money at the problem. I think you can drop off. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I think actually that's where Ajax and Celtic are kind of in very similar situations in that financially, um, as Nico said about Ajax and and as, as we know, about Celtic, financially they're far ahead of anybody else in their leagues so what you have to be able to strike a balance between is managing a club to be as successful as it can within that league and get as far as it can within Europe but not then sort of try and push yourself beyond what your limits are and see as as is the case might be with Celtic and as the case has been with Ajax for the last few years that actually Pushing yourselves too far is is not good for the club. And I think that's, personally, I, I wouldn't have a word said against Brendan Rodgers, apart from I feel like he's now not satisfied with how far he's brought the club. I personally, as a Celtic fan, know the limitations of the club. I know that, you know, we're never going to be anywhere near, probably a Europa League final is the best absolute that we could expect and to try and push ourselves any further than that would be ludicrous. I think Ajax are within that same situation. Um, and that brings me to another question, Nikos. Do you think in your role in, in, in observing clubs, do you think there are some clubs who try to push themselves too far with the resources that they have, or do they go about things the wrong way in terms of the, the process by which they try and manage that? Uh, I mean, yeah, you can look at the championship uh, which features a lot of those teams because, of course, the uh, potential windfall from getting promoted is such that teams are very, very willing to take a lot of risk. You saw that with Aston Villa, for instance, who uh, ran into serious financial difficulties. Birmingham City are one as well. I mean, you know, Sunderland are an obvious one. Uh, you see that. So basically, the top of the championship features a lot of teams like that. Uh, who will push for promotion and then if they just miss out, miss out, have a very serious financial issue. 
And you see that even more with teams that uh, circle the drain at the bottom of the Premier League for a couple of seasons, Sunderland being the most obvious example there. Because the uh, financial loss that you get from getting relegated is such, uh, it's so big, they'll search a short-term solution to stay up, do that again the next season, do that again the next season, and by that point, they will have have short-term sort of thinking for three years. And then when they do finally go down, like they're completely lost, which is something that happened to Sunderland. A Wigan in the past, Wolves even. Yeah, I think there's. I think like you say, England's a perfect example. So many clubs throughout, you know, all the lower level leagues have have been clubs that have been in the Premier League at some point since its inception twenty five years ago, uh, and some of those have dropped, in some cases down to League Two. I, I'm not sure specifically, but I'm sure there are some cases where they've dropped out of the football league altogether. So, England is a great example of that. Do you think that there's a way in which clubs can can manage to build on their successes gradually? Um, what are the best ways to do that and, and ways to avoid, you know, pushing themselves in that manner to the point where they almost bring on their own collapse? Uh, I think uh, Brentford, where I used to work, is a very good example of that, who have slowly over the, time, over the, the course of the last few years uh, bought very cheap players from lower leagues or from abroad, developed them, and then sold them on for more money, which they then reinvested to get a slightly higher level of players they bought in, developed them, sold them, uh, bought from an yet another higher level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that sort of gradually builds a better squad over the years. And I think they're a very good example. They remain one of the teams in the bottom three of, in terms of operating budget and have managed to finish top 10 in the league every year since they've gotten promoted. Yeah, Stevie, I think that's a. I think to me, as a kind of hopefully rational person, that sounds like for a lot of clubs a, a kind of acceptable way for it to be run from a fan's perspective. I don't see an issue with buying players cheap, improving them, hopefully benefiting from them while they improve, and then selling them on for a profit and building slowly in that way. Do you think? That in the modern era, there's too many, there's too many expectations, not only from within the club but from fans, to kind of pump money in, you know, ad nauseum and and not really think about the long term consequences of that. Yeah, I think there's always pressure from fans to clubs to say spend some money and get as high up as you can. So I think it's one of those things where if you're going to spend a lot of money there's obviously risk attached to it. If you're a St Johnston, for example, and we spent three million on a striker, that would probably cause us some significant financial problems for no real gain, unless you're trying to win the league. So I think there's always a balancing act for a club of saying, right, how do we get from where we are to whatever? So if we're a, I'm a St Johnston supporter, so let's say that we, we spend a lot of money on making a really good youth academy, hiring lots of really good coaches, hiring lots of really good scouts, you can have all that, but if you don't have a first-team manager who's willing to play the young players to then sell them on, then there's no point in making the original investment. So everything has to be tied together. If you're a club who are going to focus on free transfers, bring them in, sell them on 18 months later, three years later, and maybe try and continually reinvest the money, then I don't see an issue with that. I think if you're a, if you're a Real Madrid and that's your strategy, it's probably wrong. If you're a Hitafe, it's probably the right thing to do. Maybe get you know, kids that have been released from Real Madrid and see if you can put them into the squad and sell them on for more money or 
try and build up a squad and sell somebody to the English Premiership for thirty million after hyping them up. So I think there's there's nothing wrong with it. I think it's a sensible way of doing it. It's just one of those things where fans want you to spend and do the glamorous thing. And you know, always doing the most glamorous thing is the most successful. And I think clubs and supporters have to work together to make sure that those expectations are met. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And I think that there are some managers out there, Jose Mourinho being one, um, who I think sometimes get a little bit of an unfair rap for you know, not being willing to field youth and to to nurture youth. You know, he's he's a, essentially probably still the biggest club in England. And, and people supporting that club want success immediately. They don't want to have to wait four, five, six years for another trophy. So although, yes, he's spending a lot of money on players coming in, what else is he going to do in that situation if he's got pressure from outside... Um, for success and that was another thing Nikos I wanted to ask you a a lot of people see the kind of youth nurturing side of things as a kind of very sort of humble and and maybe even morally correct way to to run a club is that true do you think or do you think that there's a balance to be struck I just find that you know everybody thinks youth development is the cheaper way to go but maybe it's not maybe the the amount of money that needs pumped into infrastructure in order to have that good youth academy is actually not always as financially viable as just going out and spending a few million on a player that will have an impact on your team straight away no i mean what stevie said i think is correct like uh, if you look at for instance man united i think they should have a slight focus on the youth academy because that has been their club culture for years and years and years i think it's they've had a a a youth academy graduate in their first team squad every single game since the late 1930s uh so if you consider that then you have to go along with that to a degree but on the other hand i mean you hire jose Mourinho. you know that that is what he does you know that uh that he doesn't necessarily play a lot of kids so if you hire him that it cannot be a surprise that he won't actually go along with that youth academy uh, focus, at least not to a particularly high degree. Yeah, I think I think that's entirely correct, and I think that brings us back full circle to to what we were talking about before. Kind of in terms of a club really needs to know what it is they want from their manager or from their staff or their players that they're bringing in before they bring them in. It's much better to find somebody who fits your plan and your ethos than than to bring somebody in because they are a big name and then change what you're doing in the long term to fit that person because as we all know managers nowadays I think the average is sort of less than two years for any manager at a club so to change your long-term plan and your outlook as an institution based on the presence of somebody who's likely going to be there for less than 18 months to two years is kind of not a not a great way to do it. Um, yeah, that that is of course why more and more clubs are switching to a director football model as well, because you need someone to look after the long term of your club and managers, as you say, you know they can't do that because if they lose a couple of games, they're out, they're out of out of a job. So if I'm in that situation, I'm not going to worry about the long term either, because I won't be around. Yeah, I think I think the director of football model is certainly something that 
players, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, managers on the the mainland Europe on the continent are much more used to dealing with over the years, and it is cer- certainly something that's coming over to the UK. Um, Stevie, do you think that as a model is something that's probably going to become more common, certainly in the UK as much as it is in Europe these days? Yeah, I think it is, and I think it's it's funny because Ian Cathro and Craig Levine at Hearts had the director of football model, and there was widespread outrage about it. Like, why are you allowing somebody to undermine you? It's not really undermining us. I have to look after the club. You have to look after the team. Whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Spain, whether it's in North America, it doesn't really matter. It's, if we know that a manager is only going to be in a job for maybe two seasons, he's going to look to be as successful as he can in two seasons. He's not going to look at how successful can the club be in 10 years because they don't really care. They want to win while they're there. So if you have, say, Nikos in charge of a football club, his job will be to make sure the club is successful over 10 years. Part of that will be hiring people who can make the club win on the field or achieve whatever success looks like in the time that they're there. The club manager is there for for three years and their target is to win a cup, get into Europe and try and reach uh, the Europa League knockout stages. Then, Then Nikos, if he's a director of football, will have to sign the players and put the infrastructure in place for that manager to achieve it. And if that manager leaves, then the next one will have the same the same sort of remit. So it's one of those things where I think it will become normal within the next three or four years if it isn't already in that process now. Yeah, I think I think that's that's absolutely correct. And I think the take home message for anybody listening is make sure you get a director of football and whatever you do, make sure it's not Mark Overmars. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, guys, um, thanks very much for your time today. I know you've both got places to be, things to do, um, so we're just doing a little short podcast today. Nikos, thanks very much for joining us today. Where can people find you and what are you up to at the moment? I can be found on Twitter. Uh, my my username is at overhaul. so that's just my, my initial and my last name. And other than that, I am just doing consultancy for different parties. Great, thank you very much for your time, Stevie. Where thank can you. people find you? My Twitter is at Stevie Grieve, and I'm hoping, I've been saying for a long time, but we have lots of delays, um, I'm hoping that the Tactical Teacher Level 2 will be out within the next couple of weeks with the app. So hopefully we'll be able to plug that in the next week or so. Great stuff. I'll look forward to talking to you about that. That's been uh, a long time in the making. I'm, I know, so it'll be good to get you back on and discuss sort of what the ins and outs of that are and see what people can use it for in the future. So that's that's good. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. My name is Laura Bradburn, as you've heard. Um, you can find me at lbrad88 on Twitter. This has been the World Football Index podcast, and we will see you next week. Next week.